Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And he says in 1 Chronicles 28.9, Thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father. Serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he'll be found of thee. See, David, he was so impressed with this that he said in Psalm 139.1, Psalm 139.1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. And it was these hidden, hidden thoughts of man's heart that God finally decided to give up on trying to correct man and instead bring in the great flood judgment on the earth when he said in Genesis 6-5, Genesis 6-5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So like the brothers thinking that their words were private and they were hid when all along, Joseph is understanding every word. When we understand that, that the Lord is understanding every one of our thoughts, we'll instantly confess foolish thoughts. Why? Because foolish thoughts are sin. As it says in Proverbs 24.9, Proverbs 24.9, the thought of foolishness is sin. Sin starts with thoughts, which is why what can be seen in movies and in much of the TV is so bad because it plants sinful thoughts in the mind and they have to be confessed. And the devil's great deception is that, no, 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 sin is only actions, not thoughts. You don't have to confess your thoughts. You only have to confess your actions. So it's okay, watch those movies, watch those shows. Let them plant dirty thoughts in your minds because it's really not sin. But the truth is, Proverbs 24, 9, the thought of foolishness is sin. And the truth is, Mark 7, 21, Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. Boy, that pretty much sums up what's on TV and the movies today, right? Adulteries, fornications, and murders. I mean, what do you think Joseph was thinking? What do you think Joseph was thinking? He's hearing all these things. He hears them say, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in verse 21. What do you think he was thinking when he heard his brothers say in verse 21, we are verily guilty concerning our brother? Now, this is Joseph. What do you think he was thinking? Yeah, good step in the right direction. It's a good step in the right direction. We can imagine him saying to himself, oh, they're moving in the right direction. Boy, I sure am looking forward to the time when they're going to confess to me. 
<laughs> their guilt. That would be nice. I mean, Joseph is hearing he's longing. When he's hearing he's longing, he's longing for the day when they're going to confess their guilt. Like the Lord hearing our private thoughts and longing, well, when is he going to confess that to me? And fortunately, in the case of the brothers, there is a time when the brothers will fully repent and ask Joseph for forgiveness, but not just yet. They're still in the hawking among one to another stage. Now, we read about some de- these details in their conversation in verse 21. It says, they said, we are very guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us we would not hear. Now, that's surprising for us, because we didn't know about this. We didn't know about the anguish of his soul that could be seen on Joseph's face. I mean, all we knew was from Genesis 37, 23, when we read about the account. Genesis 23, sorry, 37, 23 says, It came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brother that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him, cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So there's nothing in that account. There's nothing in Genesis 37 about any anguish seen on his face, Joseph's soul. And there's nothing in Genesis 37 about Joseph begging them to not do what they did to him. And there's nothing in Genesis 37 about their refusal to hear Joseph's cries for mercies. So when we read all these details in verse 21, it's just a surprise. Now, it's not hard to imagine, of course. We could think, okay, you know, yeah, anguish, you know, crying from, yeah, but the details were not given to us in chapter 37. But now we have all these new details, and they're laid out for us with a crystal clarity. And it sort of feels like, a little bit like we're in some kind of a, an interrogation room of a police station, and all of a sudden, these details are spilling out with the confession of full of details. But from these details, we're learning about what Joseph, more about what he suffered in, during that time. Because when these brothers are talking about seeing the anguish of his soul, that's a very detailed picture that they had in their minds. It was a perfect memory of what Joseph's face looked like. They could have drawn you a picture that was as good as a photograph of that time when they were casting him into the pit. I mean, that image of Joseph's face was etched in perfect relief into the memories of their consciences. As we see the brothers here relate with such crystal clarity all these details about what happened 23 years ago, 23 years ago, what this shows us is that time does not blot out the records on the conscience. And their consciences brought back the exact details of what happened 23 years ago. I mean, just notice the words there in verse 21, we saw, we saw. That shows us how vividly they remembered the scene of the anguish on Joseph's face. It's 23 years ago, and they're seeing every wrinkle on Joseph's face of anguish. It's 23 years ago. They're hearing now the exact sound of Joseph's crying voice. It's 23 years ago, and they're hearing every word that Joseph screamed to them as he pleaded for mercy. Now, you're sitting here right now. How much can you remember of what happened 23 years ago? 
I mean, so you think back. I don't know, maybe you've got a perfect... I can't remember anything. I can't remember what happened 23 hours ago. Less than 23 years ago. I doubt there's very much you can remember of what happened for 23 years ago. But in verse 21, they can remember the exact look of anguish on Joseph's face. And that was 23 years ago. How could they remember that? How could they remember that? Because of the work of conscience. Conscience. When we witness to a lost person, you know we're looking for a partnership. We're looking for a couple of partnerships in this game. The first partnership we're looking for is the partnership of the person's conscience to work with us. And the second partnership we're looking for is the work of God in bringing trouble into that person's life. And if we went to these brothers before the famine and we said, boys, you are sinners, they would say, we don't feel that bad. (laughs) We're really quite comfortable in life. There's no big problems in life. And then if we said, you need a savior, they'd say, savior from what? You know, you know, when I drive over the Coronado Bridge, I'm looking forward to get to the beach, not stop halfway and jump over. And what they are saying is, I have suppressed my memory and guilt and thoughts of my sins. You know, it reminds me of when I had lunch with a friend of mine, and I asked him if he was ready to die, and he said to me, I don't think about it. I just push all those thoughts out of my mind. But death... The body deteriorates. Actually, it's deteriorating before death, but it's anyways, death, it really deteriorates. (laughs) But the conscience and memories do not, do not. And it's the restoration of perfect memory that makes hell so terrible. The worst word that Abraham said to the rich man who lifted up his eyes in hell in Luke 16, 25, Luke 16, 25, but Abraham said, son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. It's that word, remember. Abraham said to him, remember. He says to the rich man in hell, remember. That was terrible because it shows that people in hell have perfect memories of what they wish they could have forgotten. And as a matter of fact, this picture that we have here illustrates the truth. I mean, here are the brothers They're in front of Joseph. He's the ruler. They don't know he's Joseph. He's the ruler of Egypt. The brothers have now fallen into the hands of Joseph. And all the details of their sins have come perfectly back to them before their eyes. That illustrates to us what will happen to every person when in judgment they fall into the hands of God. All that they tried to block from their minds will suddenly come back with a sharp focus. And it's the memories of sin that are so haunting in hell that there's one thing that people in hell wish that they could be rid of. It's that perfectly clear memory from their truthful consciences. And the fact that in hell there's a perfect recall and it's so terrible, that's what drives us so hard to try to deliver the lost from being cast into hell. So when they said, we are verily guilty, we can see how great the consciousness is that God has put into each one of us. As they remembered seeing the anguish on Joseph's soul, and they remembered refusing to hear his pleads, his pleading cries, and their conscience accusing them now, as it says in Romans 2.15, Romans 2.15, 
which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. It's interesting in Romans 2.15 when it says, conscience also bearing witness. Conscience also bearing witness. You know, the term bearing witness brings to mind a court scene where a person is called to take the witness stand and bear witness. And what has he got to do when he bears witness? He's got to remember. He's got to remember. And that's what's needed to bear witness, memory. And that's what the conscience does. The conscience is the remembrancer, which isn't even a word, but anyway, the remembrancer. The conscience brings to mind the things that were done in the past. Sometimes those things were done a long, long time ago, but conscience brings them to mind. Again, like it just happened, even to the details of seeing anguish on the face of a person. Conscience fights against time. Time would make the remembrance and the guilt of sin just drift away, drift, be lost into obscurity. But conscience holds on to that remembrance and it holds on to that guilt of sin and it doesn't let it go away. And for the believer, this is very important for us that we have a sensitive conscience. Why? A sensitive conscience is a faithful friend that we should appreciate Because a sensitive conscience keeps the believer in fellowship with God. That's what keeps the believer in fellowship with God. Because as the conscience is constantly pointing out, that's a sin, it needs to be confessed and forsaken. That's a sin, it needs to be confessed and forsaken. And there's one adjective, there's one adjective that you can use to describe a sensitive conscience, and it's the word crippling. A sensitive conscience is a crippling conscience. The power of a sensitive, guilty conscience is to cripple. It's, a, it's crippling because it makes you not able to take another step until the guilty conscience is cleared through confession and forsaking. And as believers, we should pray that our consciences become so strong that they become crippling. I mean, notice how this crippling effect of conscience was expressed by David in Psalm 38.4, Psalm 38.4. When he says, for mine iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink corrupt because of my foolishness. That's pretty much the DRS, dirty, rotten sinner. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day, for my loins are filled with loads of disease, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and sore, sore broken. I have roared by the reason of the disquietness of my heart. And then in Psalm 32.3, Psalm 32.3, he goes on to describe, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture has turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, mine iniquity of night hid. I said, I'll confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. But if the conscience is not appreciated, and if the conscience is really hated, And if the conscience is drowned out with addictions to distracting entertainments, a constant nonstop distracting entertainments, enticements of shopping, or addictions to alcohol and drugs, where sin goes on nonstop, then the conscience loses its sensitivity and it becomes described in 1 Timothy 4.2. 1 Timothy 4.2, which says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a hot iron. 
It was the consciences of the brothers that brought back to their minds what they had done against Joseph. And after the consciences brought their actions back to their mind, then the conscience became, their conscience became a light that shined on those actions and showed them, you were wrong, you were wrong, you were wrong. Just as described in Ephesians 5.13, Ephesians 5.13, which says, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. That's why the greatest light that brings man's sin into view is the cross that we're going to be celebrating in the next service. Because it's the message of the cross is that man's sin was so horrible that it required this horrible death to make an atonement for it. And so looking at their sin was the light that was bringing these brothers into repentance. Looking at the cross is the light that makes us deface our sins and bring us to repentance. Now, they said in verse 21, when he besought us and we would not hear. What did they do? to make themselves not hear when Joseph was begging them for his life. They hardened their hearts. What did they do physically? They ate. They ate. They said, let's eat. Right? Genesis 37, 24, 37, 24. They took him, cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. So they ate bread. And we can imagine that now they remember every bite of those bread as it comes back to them, as their consciousness is now bringing it back. Get perfect clarity. Perfect clarity. Now, what do you think Joseph, what do you think Joseph was feeling when he heard his brothers say that they saw the anguish of his soul and they refused to hear how he begged them? What feeling do you think was in Joseph at that point? Joseph is crushed. He's crushed. He's crushed with pain and sorrow. He remembers how they caused him to face death. And so now what is he doing? He's causing them to face death as spies. And he remembers seeing them receive money. When they sold them, it said that in Genesis 37, 28, they're passed by the Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. They brought him down to Egypt. All the while, Joseph is going down as a slave. Don't you think he's thinking, what did they do with that 20 pieces of silver? That was the price for me. I mean, we can imagine him thinking, I wonder what Reuben was doing when he got his two pieces of silver. I wonder what Levi did with his two pieces. I wonder what Simeon did with their two pieces of silver that they got. I wonder if they bought some food with it. I wonder if they bought some clothing. I wonder what they did with the two pieces of silver that they each got. And we can imagine Joseph thinking to himself, I wish they had just kept those two pieces of silver so that they could look at that money and feel condemnation for having stolen their brother's freedom. And so, Joseph plans to put some money in their sacks that they paid for the food so that they could look at that money and feel condemnation for having stolen the money back, which they didn't do, but it was all orchestrated. So this whole scene here of the brothers before Joseph is sold as a slave and now he's the judge over them is like all the lost who are gonna appear before the Lord Jesus Christ as their judge. He's the one they despise. He's the one they took his name in vain. And now the lost are going to stand before him, as he said in John 5.22, John 5.22, for the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So what are we seeing? We're seeing here that the path of repentance, which they're going on, and leading to salvation is a process. 
It's a process where God is leading them into a crystallization of the exact specifics of their sin, an open confession of their sin, a clear understanding that how terrible it was and that it was happening from God. And that's what they're beginning to understand when they say in verse 21, this distress, therefore is this distress come upon us. When they say that, they're saying it's not just by chance what's happening to us. God's got us in his grip. He's got a hold of us. He won't let us go. As it says in Proverbs 26.2, Proverbs 26.2, the curse causeless shall not come. Now, we come now, verse 22, and we're surprised again. We're surprised to learn something more we didn't know from Genesis 37 when it says in verse 22, Reuben answered them saying, spake I not unto you saying, do not sin against the child and you would not hear. Therefore behold also his blood is required. And we look at that we think, Reuben? <laughs> Reuben? I mean, we didn't know this again from 37, Genesis 37. And all we knew is that Reuben left and he planned to come back when, and release Joseph out of the pit. But we didn't know that Reuben argued with them Good for Reuben. Good for Reuben. Surprising for us. Another side of Reuben as he called Joseph a child and brings up how he argued with them not to do it. I mean, Reuben hasn't exactly been of sterling character. <laughs> you know, raped his father's wife. And one of the brothers who had the reason to hate Joseph the most, he was going to be the one that he was displaced as the firstborn by the favorite, Joseph. But when you see this here, the brothers and Reuben now taking a stand against them, it highlights for us there was a division between the brothers. They were not all united. It may have been a division of only one, but they were not all united in what they should do with Joseph. I mean, this little group of Jewish brothers here is a picture of the larger group of Jewish people today. And that's what makes the weekly reports from the summer blitzers so interesting. Because you can see from the reports that many of the Jewish people are strongly opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the majority of Joseph's brothers were strongly opposed to Joseph. But then there are the Reubens. There's the one Reuben here. There's the Reubens who are less opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the summer blitz, therefore, is a searching process where we're looking for the Reubens. Knock on a door and say, is there a Reuben here? Because <laughs> we're really looking for a needle in the haystack of that Jewish person who is willing to openly acknowledge his guilt and not oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, but turn to him, the Savior and God. Now, when we read in verse 23 how Joseph spoke to them by an interpreter, it shows us how Joseph was appearing to them. He was appearing to them as an Egyptian. And that's a picture, as I mentioned, about how the Lord Jesus Christ appears to Jewish people. He doesn't look Jewish. He looks like someone very foreign to them, just like Joseph did not look like one of the brothers. He looked like an Egyptian. That's why people use the name Yeshua today, because instead of Jesus, they're trying to make him not look so foreign to the Jewish people. All right, well, that's as far as we'll go. This thing. And then in our next study, we're going to see how Joseph becomes just overwhelmed with emotion. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for recording all these details for us in your book so that we can learn, Lord, how to turn the other cheek of love, how to respect and to appreciate and to call our faithful friend our consciences. Lord, do help us to keep these things in mind. In Jesus' name, amen.
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live, located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.